This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. So, good evening everyone and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name is Sue and I'm a creative producer here at the AM. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We're so pleased to be presenting this landmark Human Nature Lecture Series in collaboration with our five major university partners, which brings leading academic scholars in environmental humanities from around Australia and the world to our audiences. The past and future intersect at the Australian Museum where our understanding is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists by our exhibitions and by events like this Human Nature Lecture Series and the Oceana Rising Program, through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture and the natural environment, and to promote understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges in our region, including climate change and the assertion of cultural identity. Covering a third of the Earth, the Pacific is home to diverse cultures that speak a quarter of the world's languages. The museum's Pacific collection represents these living cultures with thousands of artworks, cultural technologies and archaeological material from across Melanesia, Micronesia and Polynesia, and provides a record of the region's environmental and cultural histories and diversity. While the museum welcomes repatriation practices, some of these treasures can be viewed within the beautiful Pacific Spirit Gallery on Level 2, which if you haven't seen it in a previous visit, please come back and have a look. But also just um, next door in the Westpac Long Gallery. So on your next visit, possibly for the next Human Nature um, talk or just because you want to come back to the museum, um, please make sure you go and see both those spaces. Tonight we welcome Pacific eco-poet, scholar and environmentalist Craig Santos-Perez from the University of, Hawaii, Western, uh, University of Hawaii. To introduce our speaker to you, I'd now like to call on Associate Professor Tom Van Doren of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at Sydney Uni. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Sue. Um, well, it's a, a great pleasure to have the opportunity to introduce Craig Santos-Perez tonight. Um, Craig is a poet, a scholar, an editor, a publisher, an artist, an environmentalist, and a political activist. He is a native Chamorro from the Pacific island of Guahan or Guam. For the past nine years, he's been an associate professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa where his teaching and research works across the English department, the Centre for Pacific Islands Studies and the Indigenous Politics Program. It's clear from just this brief description that Craig's work and commitments move across multiple domains. His poetry and his scholarship draw us into questions of Indigenous sovereignty, of the pervasive militarism of the so-called Pacific Ocean, of climate change and environmental destruction. But Craig's work in a way that's characteristic of the best scholarship in the environmental humanities, holds these domains together, exploring their connectivities, their complicities, their possibilities. Craig asks what it means to inhabit this world well, to be a poet, a teacher, a father in this context. In so doing, his work brings these big questions into the domain of the everyday. In his poem, The Surrounded, Craig moves us between the birth of his own daughter and the displacement of millions of children by war and disaster. 
While his daughter sleeps, he reflects on those children, in his words, surrounded by fear and threat, who don't sleep at all because the attacks happen at night, because nightmares are the ghosts of shrapnel. It's in this movement that I, it's this movement that I find so compelling in Craig's work, his capacity to draw the reader into a sense of the inescapably shared and yet thoroughly unequal vulnerabilities and joys of life. Over the years that I've been aware of Craig's work, I've also been in awe of his dedication to growing this space of critical conversation and creativity, especially in Oceania, especially for Indigenous voices. He's done so in particular as an editor and publisher, perhaps most significantly through his founding of Ala Press with his wife Brandy Nalani McDougall in 2011. Ala Press is an independent publisher of Indigenous Pacific Islander literature. And I should note that Craig and Brandy will be talking about this work in a seminar at the University of Sydney on Friday morning. And you can either talk to me or look at the Sydney Environment Institute website for more information on that uh, event. So I shouldn't take up any more time. I'd like to just reiterate what a pleasure it is to have Craig here in Sydney to share with us some of his remarkable insight, passion and creativity. Tonight he'll be presenting to us on environmental justice and the power of the Pacific word. So please join me in welcoming Craig. Half a day, aloha. On behalf of my family, my people, my ancestors, I also want to offer my guinaiza and respect to, to the Gadigal people of this place, as well as to the Aboriginal peoples of country. There are so many uh, shared cultural values that I think my people have with the Aboriginal peoples here, as well as Indigenous peoples across the Pacific. Uh, despite our, our different experiences, I feel there are many things that we can learn from each other, and I just want to offer my solidarity in, in their uh, struggles for, for cultural revitalization, as well as their uh, advocacy in environmental justice. I also want to thank Tom for bringing me out here. Uh, it was a long journey, and I'm so excited to engage with the scholars and poets and students here at the universities. Um, I want to also thank uh, Estrida and Killian for organizing the workshop this morning and to the students who were able to come out and, and join us. I want to thank Sue and the folks at the museum for having me. I, I've never read in the museum before, so a first time for me, I'm very excited. Uh, mahalo, thank you. So for today's uh, talk slash performance, I'm going to read some of my own eco-poetry, defined broadly as, as poetry about nature, uh, ecology, environmental justice, food, animals, climate change, wilderness. I'll talk a little bit about some of the Pacific Islander eco-criticism that I've been writing that's kind of uh, speaking to the, the scholars, literary scholars who are here tonight. I'll talk a little bit about the teaching the environmental humanities at the University of Hawaii, where I've been for the past eight years. And then lastly, I'll talk, a few, I'll talk about a few public and community-engaged eco-literature projects that I've been involved with for the past couple years in Hawaii. And we'll start with the poem. Uh, this first poem is called Chanting the Waters. And it was written a few years ago uh, for a solidarity event we held in Honolulu uh, to support the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe who were fighting to protect their own waters. And we did an event and fundraiser where I, where I read this 
this particular poem. And so that was kind of the trigger, but I also kind of wove into the poem some of the water rights issues that we're facing in Hawaii, in Guam, my home island, throughout the Pacific, and there are a few moments where the poem becomes global as well. Now this is a call and response poem. And so whenever I do that, I need you to shout, water is life. Because our bodies are 60% water. Because my wife labored for 24 hours through contracting waves. Because water breaks forth from shifting tectonic plates. Because amniotic fluid is 90% water. Because she breathed and breathed and breathed. Because our lungs are 80% water. Because our daughter crowned like a new island. Because we tell stories about gods creating water. Because our language flows from water. Because our words are islands writ on water. Because it takes more than three gallons of water to make a single sheet of paper. Because water is the next oil. Because 180,000 miles of US oil pipelines leak every day. Because we wage war over gods and water and oil. Because our planet is 70% water because only 3% of global water is fresh, because it takes two gallons of water to refine one gallon of gasoline, because it takes 20 gallons of water to make a pound of plastic, because it takes 600 gallons of water to make one hamburger, because the American water footprint is 2,000 gallons a day, because a billion people lack access to drinking water, because women and children walk four miles every day to gather clean water and deliver it home, because our bones are 30% water. Because if you lose 5% of your body's water, you will become feverish. Because if you lose 10% of your body's water, you will become immobile. Because our bodies won't survive a week without water. Because corporations privatize, dam, and bottle our waters. Because plantations divert our waters. Because animal slaughterhouses consume our waters. Because pesticides, chemicals, lead, and waste poison our waters. Because we say stop, keep the oil in the ground. Because they bring their bulldozers and drills and drones. Because we bring our feathers and lay and sage and shells and canoes and hashtags and totems. Because they call us savage and primitive and riot. Because we bring our treaties and the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Because they bring their banks and politicians and dogs and paychecks and pepper spray and bullets. Because we bring our songs and schools and prayers and chants and ceremonies because they say shut up and vanish because we are not moving because they bring their police and private militia because we bring all our relations and all our generations and all our live streams because our drumming sounds like rain after drought echoing against taut skin because our skin is 60% water. Because every year millions of children die from waterborne diseases. Because every day thousands of children die from waterborne diseases. Because by the end of this poem, five children will die from waterborne diseases. Because my daughter loves playing in the ocean. 
Because someday she'll ask, where does the ocean end? Because we'll point to the dilating horizon. Because our eyes are 95% water. Because we'll tell her the ocean has no end. Because sky and clouds lift ocean. Because mountains embrace ocean into a blessing of rain. Because ocean sky rain fills aquifers and lakes. Because ocean sky rain lake flows into the Missouri River. Because ocean sky rain lake river returns to the Pacific and connects us to our cousins at Standing Rock. Because our blood is 90% water. Because our hearts are 75% water. Because I'll teach my daughter my people's word for water, Hanum, Hanum, Hanum. So the sound of water will always carry her home. Awesome. Mahalo. Give yourselves a round of applause. That was great. Okay, now for the nerds in the house. Uh, so part of the, the scholarship I do, uh, I kind of describe it as Pacific Islander eco-criticism. And I've been develop this, developing this research from uh, kind of my studies in Native American, Pacific Islander, and global indigenous literary studies. And I, I've been thinking about Pacific Islander eco-criticism, first looking at uh, customary Pacific literature and orature, so, such as chants, genealogies, songs, uh, oral narratives and how they employ ecological images, metaphors, and symbols to express indigenous beliefs, such as the earth is an ancestor, all life is interconnected and sacred, land and water are the foundations of genealogy, identity, and community, and human beings should act uh, according to the values of reciprocity and sustainability. Uh, from there, I also look at contemporary Pacific Islander literature and spoken word, and the ways in which uh, it critiques ecological imperialism, such as the displacement of indigenous peoples from our ancestral islands, uh, the establishment of plantation, industrial, and chemical agriculture, militarism and nuclearism, deforestation and desertification, the extraction of natural resources, species extinction and endangerment, as well as climate change. And then I look at uh, Pacific literature, how it can be a symbolic site through which to revitalize indigenous environmental stories, which have often been uh, repressed and silenced by other kind of colonial stories and education systems, and to advocate for environmental justice, decolonization, and climate change activism, and to imagine sustainable futures. Of course, uh, you know, environmental themes have always been present in Pacific literature from earlier generations, such as writers like Patricia Grace or Witi Ihimaira, uh, Albert Went. Uh, to more uh, different generations, younger generations of writers, such as Sel Selena Tusi-Tala-Marsh, uh, Hanani K. Trask, and others. And it's been very exciting to me over the past couple years to see uh, Marshallese poet Kathy Gentle Kitchener to really be at the forefront of climate change poetry. And so this kind of forms the foundation of my critical research. And I have two uh, new essays coming out, and I mentioned to the workshop earlier uh, that I would mention these. One is an essay called Native Chamorro Eco-Poetry in the Work of Cecilia Perez, who's uh, a well-known Chamorro poet, also my auntie. <laughs> and that's an anthology called Eco-Poetics and the Global Landscape, which was published a few months ago. 
the second essay is called The Chamorro Creation Story, Guam Land Struggles and Contemporary Eco-Poetry, which is forthcoming in a special issue on English language notes. And that particular essay does an eco-interpretation of our creation story, which has a lot of environmental lessons to teach us. And I discuss how uh, land struggles on Guam uh, kind of reference these creation stories as a way to uh, advocate for the protection of our lands, in particular from the US military. And, and then I look at how the Chamorro creation story is rearticulated in many uh, younger Chamorro poets as a further way to kind of revitalize uh, our environmental ethics by reclaiming our creation stories. So there's two essays if, if you folks are interested in that kind of research. And that leads me into my next poem called Family Trees. Uh, this particular poem was written for uh, the Guam Soil and Tree Conservation Group, which had a conference a couple years ago, and they asked me to write about the importance of trees in Chamorro culture. And the poem I ended up writing talks about that, but also connects it to what's happening on Guam right now in terms of US militarism. So Guam has been a US colony since 1898, and is mainly used by the US as a strategic military base in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, currently, the US military occupies 30% of our entire island, and so it's a very, one of the most militarized places in the world. And one of the uh, many environmental impacts is deforestation, so the destruction of our, our native rainforest. And this particular poem references a, a new proposal that the US military is doing to create a live firing range on a wildlife refuge in Guam. And so they're uh, bulldozing a bunch of our native trees. And what is particularly sadistic is that the US military um, kind of greenwashes what it does and, and claims to be uh, considerate of indigenous and ecological issues. And so what they've done is they actually invited a bunch of uh, Chamorro cultural practitioners, as well as carvers and other um, plant medicinal healers onto this land to claim the trees that they want to keep. So then the US, after they bulldoze it, they will deliver these trees for the people to have. Another thing that's quite horrible about this is that in this area is one of the last remaining native trees uh, called Hadun Lagu, and it translates as a fire tree. And there's only one of these native trees left on the entire island, the last mother tree, and it's in this area. And what they're gonna do is to put a fence around it. And that's their, that's their idea of conservation. And so this poem talks about those issues. Family trees. Before we enter Ihalamtano, the deep jungle, my dad asked permission of Itata Motna, the spirits who dwell within. He closes his eyes and says, Ekunguk, listen. As we walk, he names each tree, each elder, Nizuk, Lemai, Ifit, Zoga, Nunu, who have provided us, who has provided us clothes and tools, canoes and shelter, food and medicine. When you take, my dad says, take with gratitude and never more than what you need. When we reach the fence, 
He tells me how the military uprooted trees with bulldozers, paved the land with concrete, planted toxic chemicals and ordinances. He translates eminent domain as theft, to turn a place of abundance into a base for destruction. Barbed wire spreads like invasive vines whose only flowers are cancerous tumors that bloom on every branch of our family tree. Today, the military invites us to collect plants and trees within areas of the Texan slated to be cleared for the construction of a live firing range complex. Fill out the appropriate forms and wait 14 business days for a background and security check. If we receive their permission, they'll escort us to mark and claim what trees we want delivered after removal. They call this benevolence. Yet why does it feel like a cruel reaping? My dad never showed me the endangered Hadzunlagu fire tree, the last struggling to survive in the Texan, its only home. Don't worry, the military says, we'll build a fence around the tree. They call this mitigation. Yet why does it feel like the disturbed edge of extinction? Ekumuk, ancient whispers rouse the jungle. Listen, oceanic waves stir against rocks. Ekumuk, Itata Motna call us to rise. Listen, Itrunken Zoga calls us to stand tall. Ekunguk, Ichunkin Lemai calls us to spread our arms wide. Listen, Ichunkin Nunu calls to link our hands. Ekunguk, Ichunkin Ifut calls us to be firm. Listen, Ichunkin Nidza calls us to never break. Ekunguk, Ihalam Tano calls us to surround Ihadzun Lagu and chant, We are the seeds of the last fire tree. We are the seeds of the last fire tree. We are the seeds of the last fire tree. Ahi, no, we do not give you permission. Thank you. So that's, that struggle is, is still going on, right, as we speak. So I also want to talk about uh, kind of some of the teaching I've been doing at the University of Hawaii. We don't actually have an environment institute or environmental humanities program. And so a lot of the courses I teach are just within the English department. Uh, one of the major courses is Pacific Islander liter Literature and Theory. And as I mentioned earlier, pretty much every Pacific writer you read writes about the environment. Another course I love is uh, Food Poetry, and it's a creative writing course. And one of my favorite, or one of the students' favorite assignments is something we call a recipe. So it's kind of part recipe and part poem. Uh, so we talk about like food stories, uh, food culture, and of course being in Hawaii we talk a lot about food colonialism, food justice, and food sovereignty as well. And then the third signature course I teach is eco-poetry, and again it's a creative writing course. So we both read uh, eco-poetry and then the students write their own eco-poetry in response. Uh, some of the units I've taught are uh, a unit on like hydro-poetry, so writing about water, the ocean, uh, queer eco-poetry, we have a unit on plastic, a unit on nuclear poetry, clipo or climate poetry, uh, extinction, and, and more. And I found it's a great way for you know, students to uh, get engaged in these environmental issues, learn about them through the poetry, be more creative by, by writing their own poetry. And then of course throughout the course we have various 
um, kind of community engaged requirements where we actually uh, attend different kinds of environmental events happening in Hawaii. And so the next poem uh, I want to read is, is also an eco poem. And this poem is actually begins with the epigraph from Tom. <laughs> I didn't tell him this. Uh, and so I was very inspired by your book, uh, Flightways, which I read a couple years ago. And the quote is, what is lost when a species, an evolutionary lineage, a way of life passes from the world? What does this loss mean within a particular multi-species community in which it occurs? A community of humans and non-humans, of the living and the dead. That's from Tom's book, Flightways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction. This poem is called The Last Safe Habitat and is dedicated to a native Hawaiian bird called the Kauai O'o, whose last song was heard in 1987, which is when it, it went extinct. The Last Safe Habitat. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, swallow, disease, and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last cited. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai O'o, who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree, who was calling, sorry, who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree, calling for a mate day after day, season after season, because he didn't know he was the last of his kind, until one day he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on Earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination, a wondrous island with a climate we can never change and a rainforest fertile with seeds and song. Thank you. So next I want to talk briefly about some of the public and community-engaged environmental humanities projects I've been working on. Um, this first one is, is called a Poetry Feast. And it was a, a poetry event that my food writing class did uh, in collaboration with a place called Kokua Market. And it's Honolulu's only food co-op, and they do a lot of work around food justice, local and organic foods. And basically, we wrote a lot of poems related to food in Hawaii, 
and then we did a poetry reading at the grocery store. And so we invited all our friends, had a good crowd, um, brought some good business to the store, and we read some poetries in their courtyard, as well as we serenaded the bananas and pineapple <laughs> within the store. And it was funny because there are a lot of people who came for the event who, who knew about it, but then there were many just random shoppers who were like, what's going on? Um, and I'll kind of interrupt my slideshow to share uh, one, one little thing that looking, about, looking at these pictures just reminded me of is that you'll see the Marshallese poet Kathy in the middle of this picture wearing the blue. So she was an, a former student and um, she was actually still pregnant with her, with her daughter during this class. So this was before her big United Nations reading. Um, and then the other student over there with the guitar is a, a Tongan American uh, scholar and poet. And the three of us are actually co-editing an anthology on Pacific literature and the environment, which is forthcoming from the University of Hawaii Press in 2021. And so it's, it's been great to work with so many Pacific Islander students at UH and to see all the great things they've done you know, after they graduated and to, to be able to continue this work uh, and bringing kind of Pacific literature and the environment uh, into uh, an anthology that we think will be a wonderful resource in the classroom as well as in the community. The second project I want to share is called the My Hawaii Story Project. And this is in collaboration with a nonprofit that I'm on, on the board of called the Pacific Writers Connection. And what we do every year is a writing contest for middle school students across the Hawaiian archipelago. And basically we give them the theme that is also the theme of the annual Hawaii Conservation Alliance Conference which is Hawaii's biggest annual environmental conference. And so the students have the theme uh, this year is Hei he Aali'i Ku Makani'ao, which means resilience in the face of change. And so we work with the students' teachers uh, to give them lesson plans, and then the students write poetry and submit it to our organization. We judge the poetry, choose winners, and we invite the winners to come to the conference, and we do an eco-poetry youth reading at the environmental conference. And we invite the kids' families as well. And so it's great to bring the kids and they learn about environmentalism because they're attending the conference. And all the environmentalists come to our event and they could kind of be inspired by the youth reading their poetry. It's a beautiful event every summer. And if you're interested, um, we archived all the, the, the anthologies that we've done for, for the past 12 years. And so very inspiring work by by the youth of Hawaii. Um, last year we were scheduled the same time as the governor was, and I was told we had more attendees in our <laughs> poetry reading than the governor for his uh, statement. And so the poem I want to read actually is, is not on this slide, but since Tom mentioned uh, some of the other writing I've been doing in response to kind of the global refugee crisis, I wanted to share uh, this poem that was written uh, for World Refugee Day, which is uh, every June, June 6th. And we had another event in Hawaii, another kind of solidarity event uh, for Syrian refugees. And it was kind of a way just to raise awareness as well as to raise money. And so I wrote this poem for that event, which I shared there. And so I wanted to share it with you tonight. The poem is called Care. 
My daughter wakes from her nap and cries. I pick her up, press her against my chest, and whisper, Daddy's here, Daddy's here. Here is the island of Oahu, 8,500 miles from Syria. But what if Pacific trade winds suddenly became helicopters, flames and shrapnel indiscriminately barreling towards us? What if shadows cast against our windows aren't plumeria tree branches, but soldiers and terrorists marching? Would we reach the desperate boats of the Mediterranean in time? If we did, could I straighten my legs into a mast balanced against the pull and drift of the current? Daddy's here, daddy's here, I whisper. But am I strong enough to carry her across the razor wires of foreign countries and racial hatred? Am I strong enough to plead, please help us? Please just let us pass. Please, we aren't suicide bombs. Am I strong enough to keep walking even after my feet crack like halabi pepper fields after five years of drought, after this drought of humanity? Trains and buses rock back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to detention centers. Yet, what if we didn't make landfall? What if here, capsized? Could you inflate your body into a buoy to hold your child above rising waters? Daddy's here, daddy's here, I whisper. Drowning is the last lullaby of the sea. I lay our daughter onto bed, her breath finally as calm as low tide. To all the parents who brave the crossing, you and your children matter. I hope your love will teach the nations that emit the most carbon and violence that they should instead remit the most compassion. I hope soon the only border between a legal refugee and an illegal migrant will be how willing we are to open our homes, offer refuge, and carry each other towards the horizon of care. Thank you. Okay, this is my last poem, my last slide. Um, this piece is called Praise Song for Oceania, and I wrote this for uh, World Oceans Day, and it was featured at the, the UN uh, Oceanographic Institution's uh, portal, their online portal. And I had a chance to perform this at, at an event in Honolulu, uh, the World Ocean Day event. And then a Hawaiian filmmaker named Justin Ah Chong, who was actually one of the filmmakers on the Hokulea, the Hawaiian Worldwide uh, Voyaging uh, Canoe Tour, uh, he transformed this poem into a, a short video, and we were lucky enough to have this video screened at various film festivals around the world. Uh, it was screened here in Hawaii, in uh, Australia, at the uh, Transoceanic uh, Visual Exchange, which uh, filmed some screens, uh, filled some 
screened some films in uh, Melbourne and Sydney as well as in the Caribbean. So that was kind of their, their exchange. So you could check it out on YouTube if you YouTube Praise Song for Oceania. Uh, you get the live version for today, which is fun. Uh, this is also a call and response poll. And so when I, when I raise a finger one, I want you to say praise. And two, please. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again so much for listening. And for having me today. Uh, I know we'll have a, a Q&A period after this poem, so I look forward to your questions as well. Praise song for Oceania. Your capacity for birth, your fluid current and trenchant darkness, our briny beginning, the source of every breath. Your capacity for renewal, your ascent into clouds and descent into rain, your underground aquifers, rivers and lakes, ice sheets and glaciers, your watersheds and hydrologic cycles. Your capacity to endure the violation of those who map you, aqua nullius, who claim dominion over you, who pillage and divide your body into latitudes and longitudes, who scar your middle passages. Your capacity to survive are trawling boats breaching your open wounds and taking from your collapsing depths. Your capacity to dilute are heavy metals and greenhouse gases, sewage and radioactive waste, pollutants and plastics. Your capacity to bury our shipwrecks and ruined cities, your watery grave, your coral reef of bones. Your capacity to remember. Your library of drowned stories, museum of lost treasures, repository of secrets, your uncontainable mystery, your vast archive of desire. Your tidalectics, our migrant routes and submarine routes. Praise. Your capacity to smother whales and fish and wash them ashore to save them from our cruelty, to show us what we're no longer allowed to take, to starve us like your corals are being starved and bleached, your liquid lungs choked of oxygen. Praise. Your capacity to forgive. Forgive our territorial hands and acidic breath. Please. Forgive our nuclear arms and naval bodies. Please. Forgive our concrete dams and cabling veins. Please. Forgive our deafening somar, sonar and lustful tourisms. Please. Forgive our invasive drilling and deep sea mining. Please. Forgive our extractions and trespasses. Please. Your capacity for mercy. Let my grandpa catch just one more fish. Make it stop raining soon. Make it rain soon. Spare our fragile farms and fruit trees. Spare our low-lying islands and atolls. Spare our coastal villages and cities. Let us cross safely to a land without war. Your capacity for hope. your rainbow warrior and peace boat, your hokulea and sea shepherd, your arctic sunrise and freedom flotillas, your nuclear free and independent Pacific movement, 
your marine stewardship councils and sustainable fisheries, your radical seafarers and native navigators, your sacred water walkers, your activist kayaks and traditional canoes, your ocean conservancies and surf rider foundations, your aquanauts and hydro labs, your ocean cleanup and Google oceans, your well hunting and shark finning bands, your sanctuaries and no take zones, your pharmacopoeia of new antibiotics, your wave and tidal energy, your hashtag ocean optimism and hashtag ocean elders, your blue humanities, your capacity for echolocation, praise our names for you that translate into creation stories and song maps, Tasi and Kai and Tai and Moana Nui and Vasa and Tahi and Like and Vaitui and Daub and Wanso Wara, your capacity for communion, our common heritage, our pathway and promise to each other, our most powerful metaphor, your vision of belonging, our endless saga, your blue planet, one world ocean, our transoceanic past, present, and future flowing through our blood. Thank you, mahalo. on the wrong track, but is Guam where the green tree snakes have eliminated 99.9% of the bird lot? Yes, so <clears throat> one of the most devastating invasive species, uh, the brown tree snake came to Guam aboard US military ships post-World War II, and there were no snakes on Guam prior to that. Uh, the impact is that it has destroyed our entire native bird population, and so it's the situation on Guam is even worse than in Hawaii, which is also uh, a difficult space for native birds. And so I didn't read any poems about that today, but I do have poems in my poetry books uh, discussing the impact that brown tree snakes have, have, have had and that still have. And so they're still a major invasive species and there's been all kinds of efforts to eradicate them as well as to um, bring back our bird population and so in relation, what happened is that in the 80s, a lot of bird conservationists came to Guam uh, and captured the last native species of several birds. And so now they only survive in zoos across the US. And some have returned back to Guam, but uh, haven't had much luck in terms of being reintroduced back into the wild because the, the snakes have still colonized the, the entire island, sadly. But thank you for asking. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for the beautiful words and beautiful thoughts. I was wondering if you could say something um, about the spirituality that comes through in your work, like especially in the last poem that's this praise song when you talk of communion, but I wonder if there's, yeah, what kind of spirituality. Definitely, thank you. Um, I think for, at least in, in my culture, a lot of our stories have formed the foundation of our, of our spirituality, and a lot of our you know, both the creation story as well as other ancestral stories teach us that our lands and waters are sacred and our, you know, our, our ancestors and our kin. And we are, you know, we should act in, you know, accordance with that belief so that, um, you know, everything we do should be, 
in relation to, to the world and to the environment. And so that belief in the sacredness of the lands and waters and, it's, and that we are part of this larger kinship network, uh, at least for me, forms my, my spiritual belief system and then I try to express that through the poetry the best I can. Yeah, thank you. Hi, um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, with regard to the actions against the military and trying to prevent them from damaging the land more than they already have, what is the likelihood of success with that? I mean, what, what kind of um, recourse do you have given the fact that they've basically taken over since they got there? Yeah, great question. Um, so resistance against U.S. militarism has been ongoing for many, many generations now. And there have been some successes in terms of um, advocating for certain environmental protections. Um, sometimes it has to do with the land. Sometimes it has to do with protecting like native species who might exist in a certain area. And unfortunately, there are also many losses because as I mentioned, the, you know, Guam is, is a colony of the United States. And so the US military has absolute power in terms of doing what they want and taking whatever land they want. And they call it eminent domain. So if they want to take more, they, they have that power. And so it's been a very difficult resistance. And this particular military buildup project has been was first proposed in 2006. And the resistance has been ongoing since it was first announced. But it's still, and every step of the way, it's, it's still being approved. No matter our objections, no matter how many acres of rainforest get destroyed, no matter how many uh, habitats are disturbed by you know, the live firing range or other military activities. And so it's very disheartening as well. And the, the, the situation is, is similar in Hawaii too. So, you know, as I'm sure all of you know, you know, the US military is one of the largest carbon emitters in the world. And that's compounded with the fact that they're also caused so much environmental destruction, not only where they put their bases, but also where they conduct war. So it's a fight that we continue to fight where poetry becomes an important element of that fight, a space where we can express ourselves and protest and critique what they're doing and also to expose what they're doing. And so what's interesting in Guam too is that when they have public hearings where people can come and give their input on the military proposals, many poets show up and, and read their anti-military poems. And many activists show up uh, and maybe they'll sing songs that are like songs of freedom, for example. And so, you know, our, our movement is, is very creative, as is the climate movement in general. And I think we have to continue to be creative in the face of all this destruction. And we have to continue to be creative to inspire and, and empower our people against these forces that are always trying to disempower us. Uh, but thank you for asking. It's, it's, it's been a difficult fight.
Thank you, Craig. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your teaching practice and the kind of conversations that are happening with the young generation. Um, I don't know if the students are both indigenous and non-indigenous and what sort of spaces for hope uh, you're finding in those conversations um, in, in the classroom setting. Wonderful, thank you. <clears throat> the University of Hawaii has a pretty diverse student body, um, mainly composed of Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Asian, Asian American students. In, in my classes, uh, and especially in the eco-poetry class, the students who enroll in it usually have some interest in the environment already. Um, some are surfers. <laughs> some just like to go to the beach on the weekend. Uh, others go hiking. Some are involved in, in various environmental nonprofits. But a lot of them, I think, are drawn to it because you know, they see the changes on island. They feel the temperatures getting hotter every year. Um, they see you know, how we've had more hurricanes or more storms that cancel class. We're in the middle of, of eco-poetry class and we get flood warnings on our cell phones. And so they see these changes happening and they're concerned. And it's great having them in class because it gives them an outlet to express what they're feeling, um, to express their anxieties and you know, their eco-anxieties and, and their worries and stuff like that. But then it also gives them a space to, to understand that poetry can also be empowering and where they can amplify their voices, which to them, you know, they're just young folks, so they feel like they can't make a difference and they feel very small. And so I think through the writing of poetry, uh, they feel more powerful. And we share the work with each other. We also do uh, like community events as well. So we'll go out and if there's like a 350.org Honolulu event, maybe we could read some of our poetry there. And then that gives them a sense of community and solidarity beyond just the writing of the poem itself. Um, and so I've been happy that students have gone on to you know, continue writing poems, to join environmental movements, um, to work with me as editors, to go on and to share their poetry at the United Nations and around the world. And I feel like that's really, I think when the, when the young people have an outlet to express themselves, uh, I think it, it can lead to wonderful things that will, will help all of us. And so that's kind of the, the, the space I tried to create in the classroom. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you might already have answered this, um, at least partially, but I, I wanted to reframe the question in the terms of the environmental humanities from a, maybe a slightly more scholarly angle. And um, one of the things that one notices when one works in the environmental humanities is a kind of interest in identifying different kind of eco-hyphen modes that are meant to be particularly efficacious. So um, those generally tend to be narrative modes rather than poetic modes, despite the fact that lots of people write about eco-poetry. Mm -hmm. If you're a scholar of the visual, of visual studies, then your mode is a visual mode or a cinematic mm -hmm. mode or a pictorial mode. Um, so I was curious to know if you could say a little bit more about how you think about poetry, eco-poetry. Um, could be maybe you, you as, you, as I said, you've answered some of these already, but so, like, as an eco-critical mode um, in the context of the environmental humanities and, and okay. it's sort of what its particular functions or abilities are? Yeah, great question, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely interesting, especially in the English department and thinking about literary studies where most of the focus goes to cli-fi, 
or climate fiction, eco-fiction, and kind of ignores you know, all the wonderful eco-poetry that's been produced. And so you know, I feel like a lot of my work is, is to create a space for eco-poetry within the larger environmental humanities conversation. Um, specifically, I think poetry is powerful because um, it's kind of a, a crystallized expression of, of emotion and feeling. Oftentimes it's, it's more personal and embodied, um, whereas fiction, usually fictional characters, not necessarily connected to the author. And so I feel like there's a, a deep sense of, of authenticity uh, to that kind of work. And so, you know, and in general, if you, if you have a you know, climate convention at the UN, it's better to open with a poet as opposed to a fiction writer, <laughs> writing, the, you know, trying to read their whole novel or chapter. And so, and so I think there's, there's also a performative element that is more connective and immediate uh, than, you know, a long narrative or fiction or even nonfiction. In terms of Pacific eco-poetry, I, I definitely feel like there couldn't be a lot more uh, focus and attention on Pacific Islander literature within the conversation of the environmental humanities. And so I'm hoping this anthology we're, we're co-editing, which is multi-genre, will um, kind of be a good intervention, hopefully leading to you know, there always being a Pacific Islander author, whether a poet or a fiction writer, within a course in the environmental humanities, whether it's taught you know, here in Australia or in Arizona or New York or wherever. So I feel like a lot of, in the Pacific, the poetic voices are, are resonating in very powerful ways in, in this discussion. So, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, it's a complex question, but I'll try to make it simple. Uh, how would you um, decolonize policies about the environment in Hawaii? Um, yeah, um, because for example, I'm thinking of New Zealand where they, they passed a law two years ago in 2017 where they gave uh, legal rights to um, a river and a forest and they based their um, decision on, on Maori um, uh, ontology and viewpoint. But it, it was a huge battle that lasted decades, and it was a battle between Maori and, and British settlers because they had very different uh, conception of nature and the environment. And so do you think that in Hawaii or more broadly in other colonized places of the Pacific, like New Caledonia or French Polynesia, do you think has a chance to be decolonized? To do you think that um, indigenous Hawaiian um, viewpoint can be included in policies? And do you think? Uh, do you think? I mean, how how would you do that? I mean, you've covered some of the points like empowerment, but like, yeah, I don't know if it's clear. Or not. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's definitely very difficult in in those settler colonial spaces, especially. You know, the U.S. settler state is very different and in some ways less collaborative, perhaps, than uh, here or, or New Zealand. What's interesting is that the environmental movement in the U.S. and, you know, and specifically in Hawaii is starting to be more collaborative with Native peoples. 
not always, obviously we think about pipelines as, as my first poem talks about. Um, but in Hawaii, there is an effort to collaborate with native Hawaiian people in terms of protecting watersheds, fish ponds, uh, other parts of the island. However, a lot of these efforts is, is what, what I call native washing. It's like this kind of superficial attempt to collaborate with indigenous peoples and to say, oh look, we're acknowledging the indigenous peoples, we're using Hawaiian words to uh, describe this valley or we're talking about Hawaiian watershed practices, but we're not actually doing that on any kind of substantial level and we're not really giving Hawaiians back their, their land uh, to steward as they see fit. We're still kind of overseeing the entire process. And so it's a very long way, I think, in Hawaii. Guam is even worse because we're a U.S. territory, not a U.S. state. And so, you know, the, I think the practice of decolonization, it's happening, and a lot of Hawaiians are very um, vocal and active in terms of protecting their lands, whether it's from U.S. Militar militarism, from the tourism industry, or just from um, capitalist urban development. It's a very difficult struggle because uh, you know, Hawaiians are a minority in the islands. But I think you know, they have a strong moral standing and they are, the Hawaiian movement is becoming stronger with every generation. And so it's exciting for me to see that there, there are more Hawaiian lands and waters being protected, being returned in small spaces. Right now, a big fight is over water. A lot of the water in Hawaii was diverted for sugar and pineapple plantations. And so a lot of Hawaiians are now uh, taking these plantation owners to court to get the water to flow back through the watersheds so that they can plant their traditional uh, crops such as kalo or taro. So they're, they're small victories, but overall it's going to be a long struggle. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.